welcome back to the Ethics in Financial Services podcast series brought to you by the Banking and Finance Oath. My name is Zoe Parkin. I'm a senior associate at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and an ambassador for the Banking and Finance Oath. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by our guest, Pablo Baruzzi. Pablo is a highly experienced financial services professional who is committed to working with others to drive a real shift towards a sustainable, ethical and resilient financial system. He is currently in the role of Senior Investment Specialist within the Sustainable Funds Group of Steward Investors. Previously, Pablo was the Head of Responsible Investment Asia Pacific for Centiar Investors and the Head of Responsible Investment for Perpetual Limited. Pablo is also founder of Altiorum, a not-for-profit library and resource centre dedicated to helping people inside and outside finance to advocate for a sustainable financial system. Pablo is also a director and the former chair of the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. He sits on the coordinating working group of the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative, and he is a member of the advisory committee of the University of New South Wales Australian Human Rights Institute. Welcome, Pablo, to our podcast. Hi, Zoe. Great to be here. Thanks. So over the next 20 minutes, Pablo and I are going to be talking about the importance of ethics in the banking and finance industry the move towards sustainable investment and why it's good for business and what we as finance professionals can do to make more sustainable investment decisions. So Pablo, on any given day, finance professionals are exposed to a number of ethical dilemmas and situations in their work. Could you talk us through why ethical practices are so important in the finance sector? Sure. So at the very base level, at the foundation, our industry isn't around transacting in dollars and cents, it's around trust and all of the other things that we do in terms of allocating financial capital, lending money to people, looking after their savings, ensuring their most valuable assets, ultimately come down to the trust that they have in us as an industry to look after their interests and to act in their interests. And also, even within financial institutions, it's the trust that happens between those organisations. And we saw in the GFC when trust completely broke down and the whole financial markets froze up and and weren't able to exchange and trade as a result. And so the ethical conduct that then is needed to help facilitate trust in us individually, but also as an industry, as organisations, is absolutely vital to a successful, efficient financial system. And so at its very foundation, that that is is what we should all be aspiring to, to achieve for ourselves and for the industry. But it also goes beyond that. Ultimately, for anyone working in a financial institution, we're looking after other people's money, whether it's in a bank and, and it's the depositors of, of savers uh, and also shareholder capital, uh, whether you're at a superannuation fund and you're looking after the, the retirement savings of members or for policyholders and insurance companies, it's all other people's money. And so we, we're charged with really trying to look after that and, and be good stewards of that money. And so being ethical in the way that we deal with that money is, is vitally important if, if we're going to actually do our jobs and discharge our stewardship responsibilities. The last bit that's really vital in the modern context, given how huge the financial services industry is, so we're talking just in terms of superannuation, $3 trillion in retirement savings just in Australia alone. It's a massive amount of money. It's an, an amount of money which can change the world. It's an amount of money which can influence corporates in the way they behave influence many parts of the economy in the way that we allocate capital. And so having a good ethical underpinnings to the way that we discharge 
our duties and the influence that we have is really important. It's the great Spider-Man saying of when there's great power comes great responsibility. It's very much true of, of us in our industry. Absolutely. And I imagine that sort of ethical dilemma is even more challenging when you're dealing with multiple stakeholders and differing interests in how to find a solution that sort of works for everyone. It can be, but I guess you've got to remember who you're ultimately needing to act in the interests of. And when you're dealing with other people's money, you need to act in those people's interests. And you need to uh, also recognise where there's asymmetries of information. So we all, well, we talk about fiduciary duty in a superannuation context. Uh, fiduciary duty is a concept of where one side has more information, a greater understanding. So your doctor has a fiduciary responsibility to you as a patient because they they have that, that medical expertise and they need to, to act in your interests when they're doing that. With the whole of the financial industry, the same is true. When we're dealing with the general public, when we're dealing with people who don't have the same knowledge that we do around around the way that we're handling their money it's really important that we act in their interests and we do the right thing by them that we're transparent and so in my past life as a risk management professional I, I, I boiled that role down very simply to looking after our clients and as long as we're looking after our clients and we're conducting ourselves honestly with our clients then all of those other laws and measures that are there to build built around our industry kind of sort themselves out because we're, we're, we're doing the right thing by clients. I want to change the topic a little bit here um, onto this term sustainable investment because this term is used quite a lot these days. However, I think there might be you know, a number of different interpretations on exactly what sustainable investment actually is. So I'd be quite interested to hear your thoughts on what it means to invest sustainably. If you go to the Principles for Responsible Investment, it's a uh, UN-sponsored bodies website. They would talk about the six principles which are around the integration of ESG factors, so their environmental, social and governance issues into investment decision-making, around engaging with companies and being a good steward of, of, of as shareholders particularly, but also as bondholders. All those things are really important and they're all part of it. But to me, when I think about it, sustainability, if we're, go- if we're going to do this well, then investment and uh, sustainable investment is, is, is a type of investment which enables and supports a flourishing, equitable, healthy environment, society and economy. And if we're, not, if we're not delivering on those outcomes, if we're not supporting those outcomes, then we really need to think long and hard about whether we're doing our jobs as well as what we ought to be. Because ultimately, we face great challenges across society. We, we have uh, Climate change is one that we hear about a lot, but there's a biodiversity crisis. We have huge amounts of people, particularly through the COVID environment, where we've lost ground in terms of alleviating poverty and human development. And so all of those issues are things that we need to grapple with. And as an industry, if we can make those things better, then we'll ultimately be more successful. And so it's good for us. It's good for the planet. It's good for people. That, that's the, the win-win-win that we really ought to be going for. And that's, that, to me, is what sustainable investment's all about. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more about, you know, sustainable investment being this win-win-win situation where everyone really benefits from it. Maybe on that point, you know, maybe we could talk a bit more about the rationale or the argument for sustainable investment. So, public, could you perhaps talk me through some of the reasons why investing sustainably is not only morally correct, but it's actually also good for business? So you mentioned, Zoe, at the beginning that I'm involved with Altiorum, which is a sustainable finance library and resource centre, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about what Altiorum does in a bit more detail later on. But we categorise all of the research in the library across four dimensions in terms of what we call the case for sustainable finance. And the, and the cases break down into four areas, which are the ethical case, and we've discussed a little bit about that in terms of stewardship and responsibility, trust, 
the business case, which is around why is operating sustainably as a financial institution good for the institution itself? And then there's the investment case, which is why is it good in terms of when you're looking at an investment opportunity or when you're looking at credit risk, if you're, if you're lending from a bank or underwriting risks as an insurer, why it's good to think about those sustainability factors in those aspects. So it's that it's external to the institution itself. And then there's the economic case, which is around the great shifts and changes, the mega trends that are running through society at the moment and how as financial institutions, we need to get out in front of those, but also we have an influence and a role to play in, in making those things better. And so from the business case perspective, you're really talking about five broad areas. So one is that consumers and customers want it and expect it from us. And there's loads of survey data out there that points to the fact that people expect their financial institutions to operate ethically and responsibly. And, and uh, you know, and unfortunately, with the Royal Commission that we saw into banking and finance, there was a breach of that and, and, and the repercussions for our industry have been very negative. And so there's a very good business case for why we want to maintain and act ethically because it, it, it avoids those types of reputational and regulatory challenges. The regulatory aspect is the next part of that. So there's, there's a compliance reason for wanting to act and operate sustainably because we want to um, actually try and avoid to have things which, which uh, deny us flexibility in terms of a reg regulatory aspect, but you have to earn that trust in order to be able to, to, to have that. There's a cost aspect, and these things are often less material for financial organisations as office-based enterprises, but it's cheaper to get your energy from renewables, to be energy efficient, to be water efficient. All of those things are helpful from a, from a cost perspective. Really good reasons around employee engagement. And so if you look at, for instance, the glass door best places to work and they track those companies against a benchmark of other companies that aren't rated so well as great places to work and the good and the companies that are great places to work outperform quite significantly just looking at it from from an, a, an investment return perspective so so businesses can get better business outcomes from their employees better more discretionary effort you just try harder when you're buying into the purpose and the values of the organization so there's a whole lot of great business case reasons. From an investment case perspective, I mean, we can see, and, and the regulators are telling us as well in terms of APRA and ASIC and the Reserve Bank, just taking climate as an example, that there's very significant financial risks that are embedded within this very complex issue of climate change. It comes through in uh, transitioning to a low carbon economy and what that means for old polluting industries, what it means for new industries that, are, that need to come in and replace them, what it means for those companies that need to shift from one model to another. It also comes in from those physical risks because there's climate changes and impacts which are already baked into the system which we're already feeling today. And we know with the bushfires that we experienced earlier in the year and that California has experienced now, I mean, there's, there's fires in Brazil, in, in Siberia of all places. So, so climate impacts are, are coming through. We just had the one of the strongest uh, typhoons to ever make landfall hit the Philippines. I mean, these are all impacts that are happening today with one degree of warming and they're things that we need to be able to build resilience into the system for. And so the so as uh, as an investor or as a insurer, uh, as, a, as, a, as a banker, being able to incorporate those factors into those decisions will help you make better financial decisions because they're going to have financial impacts. And then there's a whole range of more nuanced aspects around the reputational damage that comes from, for instance, the Banking on Shaky Ground report by Oxfam a couple of years ago, pointing to instances where banks uh, were 
not deliberately, but nonetheless funding land grabs and other human rights impacts, which then negatively impacted on those banks' reputations. So these are the types of issues which, which mean that you want to be able to consider these when, when you're making those financial decisions. But lastly, the economic case. So we mentioned climate change and all of these things obviously overlap and interrelate big changes happening across the economy. And you can also point to social movements as well, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement that we've seen, the Me Too movement. I mean, all of these issues are very relevant to how financial organisations want to run themselves. And if you're not getting out in front of these issues and actually making a positive difference in relation to them, you risk ostracising 50% of your workforce and all of your female employees you risk not being able to make as good business decisions because of the uh, the diversity that you want to see around the table. You risk reputational impacts. You risk just falling behind as well from being able to develop new and more appropriate and more relevant products and services for your clients. And so all of these issues, whether it's the business issues, the, the investment issues or the economic issues, uh, all, all make a very strong case for why companies should be putting sustainability out in front, should be all making it a centre of what, what, they're, what they're about. Absolutely. And I think some of those risks you mentioned, um, you know, the physical risks and the reputation risks are becoming more and more apparent, as you mentioned, in the world we're currently living in. The financial side of things is quite interesting because I think there's also elements of, as the costs of some of these sustainable options and technologies and you know, renewable energy is a good example, as the cost of these technologies comes down over time, that financial benefit of investing sustainably is also going to become you know, greater and greater. There's three ways that they manifest themselves. That's definitely one of them. And, and I talk about that in terms of being like a structural shift. And so this, these are things that are, they're the currents that are sitting underneath all of our investment decision making. And, and that trend around renewable energy costs falling has been happening for, for quite a long time. And so if you haven't been paying attention to it, then you've probably lost a lot of money on sticking with fossil fuel-based energy sources, for instance, which are, which are all suffering in terms of, of the, the not being competitive anymore and being increasingly less competitive as those costs come down. But there's also two other areas where, where those issues can manifest themselves from a financial aspect. And one is what are called the blow-ups. And so they're your Deepwater Horizon BP spilling millions of barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Now, that's cost them somewhere in the order of I'm not going to say a figure because I can't remember it now off the top of my head. I think it might have been $50 billion. They basically gave up a decade's worth of profits as a result of that. And if you look at it beforehand, you can't predict when a particular event is going to happen. But they were having safety issues and other infringement notices from regulators than any of the other major oil and gas companies. They've been going through a cost-cutting exercise. They'd had two major disasters in terms of an Alaskan pipeline spill and the Texas oil refinery explosion in the years preceding it. So if you were going to look at a at a company that was at most at risk from a blow-up and a very significant event, um, BP was it. Boohoo in the UK with their, this year with their labour rights issues that they found in their supply chain domestically as well, not, not, not an emerging market, but in Leicester in the UK, there have been uh, various concerns raised about this fast fashion and how, how does it stack up as a business? This is a business model issue in terms of, of how you can actually pay people appropriately and then deliver clothes and turn that over really quickly at such low cost. It's like squeezing a balloon. The impacts have to come out somewhere and, and for them it came out in terms of their labour rights. And so those things, again, you, can't, you couldn't predict when it was going to hit the newspapers, but there's tensions there which you need to be thinking about. 
The last one are the marginal benefits, and they're much less exciting and interesting for most people than the blow-ups or the big structural shifts, because that, that, that takes up so much of the attention of media and commentators. But they're really important because they give you those things, like I mentioned before, around employee engagement, around being more efficient in terms of energy and water and what that does to your cost base. And when you're thinking about compounding returns over the long term, so if you're a long-term investor, then those marginal benefits really add up to be quite significant over time. And so by by just having better practices will give you those benefits um, and, and that, co- that effect of compounding makes it a very significant part of, of investment decision-making. Mm, absolutely. No, I, th- I think the, the argument for why sustainable investment is good for business, I mean, there's so many different angles you can come at, come at it, but there's so many good reasons why, you know, it's, it's the right decision. I guess my next question is that if sustainable investment is really good for business, then why aren't we seeing a faster transition towards sustainable investments? You know, what do you think are some of the barriers in place that, that are holding people back from making this shift? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, inertia is a big part of it. And I think there's, a, there's also, I guess, a culture that had come through in terms of the way that our economic and social systems have worked, and particularly over the last 30 or 40 years where, you know, the Milton Friedman, the, the social responsibility of businesses to make profit has had a really negative impact on the way that we see ourselves as an industry, the way that we see our roles in society. And those things take some time to get over. So there's that aspect to it. I think you can point to finance theory and the way that we run our portfolios as being quite disconnected. So if you think about the efficient frontier and uh, how how institutional investors build portfolios of assets and they're looking at the correlations between risks and returns for different asset classes, it's entirely disconnected from the impacts those actual assets are having on the world. And so we need to try and build that bridge and that connection back to real world impact. Even things like benchmarks, for instance. And so most investors, so we work, I work at an asset manager by day and our clients look at our success through the prism of a of, of whether we're we're beating the MSI MSCI World Index as an example. But ten years ago that index, the top ten holdings, three or four of them would have been major oil and gas companies and none of them are in there now. And so, you know, looking at, at benchmarks as being what risk is as opposed to thinking about loss of capital and thinking about the impacts that companies are having on the world and what that might mean for them in the future as opposed to the recent past, that's a kind of a blind spot for us as investors because we're we're actually not focused on the right thing and not thinking about risk in the right way. Short-termism, lack of diversity, there's there's a range of sort of barriers there, career risk in terms of trying to move too far too quickly. So all of those things are true and and they they still operate within organisations, they still operate at the industry as a whole. But what you've seen in the last couple of years is a really rapid change and you've seen, and it's been driven by a number of factors. So consumers increasingly are moving money to more sustainable investment options, to more sustainable financial options. Australian Ethical Investments is the fastest growing superannuation fund in Australia over the last couple of years. The investment performance has been really strong. So so I think increasingly that myth about underperformance if you invest sustainably is being broken down and so people don't feel as though that's a constraint. They're asking their financial advisors for sustainable financial products. And so I think that's a big driver for the industry because the industry will respond to consumer demand. There's been a regulatory push where you've seen APRA, ASIC, the RBA, 
and Financial Stability Board. We're looking at global financial stability. Mark Carney chairing that when he was Governor of the Bank of England, looking at climate risk and coming out with the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So that regulatory push has been a big part of it. And then you have the economic impacts, which are, which are increasingly manifesting themselves, as I mentioned earlier. And so all of those things are really driving the industry to what is an inevitable conclusion. And so the question ultimately for financial institutions and for us all as financial professionals is do we want to get out in front of that or do we want to try and hold on and so some some won't be able to make the mindset shift that's needed and they will fall behind but for others uh, who are getting out in front of that and the beneficiaries of that are the bank australia's and the australian ethicals or and you see that you know in qbe is a great example who is completely sort of transitioned the way that they think about climate risk in just a, a handful of years where you, know, you can point to them now as being a leading institution in terms of the way that they think about climate change risks within their insurance book. And that is a really powerful change and, and they because they see the opportunity and they see the risks of not doing it. And so I think that that driver is only going to increase as more and more institutions do that. Last one I'll point to as an example is the number of industry super funds just in the few weeks, last few weeks that have made commitments around net zero out to 2050. Now, I think any commitment out to 2050 is probably too far away to really be meaningful. And so you really want to see that action immediately. We have to get on top of the emissions issue today. <laughs> um, but they're positive signals in terms of setting a, a clear signal of where, where, the, where the industry needs to go, where they intend to go as institutions. And so we should see that trend just continue to accelerate in the near term. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you. I think that setting the target for 2050 is definitely the first step, but you need to follow through by then setting your kind of shorter term targets, your your uh, year by year pathway to actually achieve that target. I think what you said about, you know, this change being inevitable is very true. And, and perhaps investors maybe don't have the right mindset or the right knowledge or, or skills to be making those, those investment decisions. So how can we overcome this barrier? You know, as finance professionals working in the industry, what can we do to make better investment decisions? There's a few things. And I think the, the first thing is to kind of step back and try and think about how these issues relate to your day job. And so I used to, when I was first sent here investors and I, I was in this dedicated, responsible investment role, I'd have coffees with so many people who would get in touch with me just randomly to say, hey, I'm really keen to get into responsible investment. How do I do that? That's, that's you know, I'm really passionate about these issues. And, and the thing that I would first say to them is look at your current role, like whether you're in strategy, whether you're in product, whether you're in finance or investment analyst. I mean, there's a range of people doing things which all have influence within their organisations and think about how these issues relate to your current role. Because when I, before I got into a sort of a dedicated responsible investment role, I was a risk manager, as I mentioned, and I and I transitioned across because as a risk manager, I started thinking about, and this is going back to sort of 2006, 2007, about, well, climate change is a risk. Why isn't it on our risk register? Why aren't we thinking about it in terms of our investment policies and processes? And, and back at that time, it was still relatively new. There was, there was clearly people who had, who had done a fantastic job with it previously, but but in terms of that mainstream acceptance, it was still kind of seen as being this side option. And so it doesn't really matter what type of role you're in. There's a strong likelihood that there is relevance of these issues to what you're currently doing today. And so take a step back and think about how you can apply that thinking to, to what you do today. And Altiorum, which I'll, I'll give it a plug now, has been, has been fully set up to try and support people in doing that. So as I mentioned before, we... We classify thing research in terms of the business case, the investment case, 
the ethical case and the economic case, but we also classified in terms of implementation. So are you trying, is it relevant to product development? Is it relevant to strategy? Is it relevant to investment analysis? And so trying to make that connection between the wealth of resources, and there's, there's really so much fantastic information out there, and those really functional aspects. And as we grow LTORM, it's still a relatively new venture and the library is still, still growing its content base, we'll be able to increasingly make the connections and, and, and apply almost like how-to guides and playbooks for how do you make change in specific circumstances. And we'd love for more people, it's a community-built resource, and so we'd love for more people to volunteer some of their time to help build out the resources to mentor university students who are summarising all of the research. I think that, that's the other important thing about Altiorum is that they're bite-sized chunks of research. We do summaries of, of otherwise very long documents and people wanting to make a difference in the industry often don't have the time because they're doing their day job to read 100-page reports, let alone read 1,000-page reports that might be relevant to a particular issue that you're trying to grapple with. And so by having a, a resource like Altiorum, you can get really neat summaries of those research pieces and then dive in and get more in-depth views if you if you find that it's particularly relevant. So join up to Altiorum, it's free. You can then start to relate these issues to your day job. And then if you want to get more involved by volunteering, we'd love that too. So that's what one aspect is to take that step back, think about the relevance, start to build a case for change or think about how to implement change within your current roles. I think the other thing that Altiorum is really trying to do is to help people advocate effectively internally within their organisations. And so this is something which I think, particularly in, I've, um, in my career, I think there's, there is, and I mentioned career risk as one of those blockers that there's, and the culture within finance historically has been one of leaving your values at the door and you're there to achieve a particular outcome. I think a lot of that is changing. And I think really the smartest and best and most progressive financial institutions now are trying to tap in to the views of the of their employees, they do their engagement surveys, they do all of these other things and really take those opportunities and take the opportunities when you're talking through your development reviews, when you're talking through performance review programs and, and any other forum that you might have an opportunity to plug into to raise these issues. Because the more people that we have raising these issues within financial institutions and having it pushed up the chain, the more likely it is that they're going to be incorporated into the way that decisions are made and the way that strategy is set, the way the products are developed. And so you really need to voice your concern and voice your um, your interest in these issues because there's lots of pressure from the outside. We've got NGOs, I've mentioned regulators before. All of these things are happening, but a really, I think, untapped and still largely unused point of, uh, of pressure and influence is that internal pressure from, from financial professionals to advocate for sustainability. And so, again, Altiorum is, is a way to, to help with that. So it sounds like the first step is really just having that curiosity to, to question the way things have been done and perhaps there's a better way to do things and does this still make sense the way we've invested in the past? And then step two is maybe to to use resources like the Altiorium library to, to maybe understand a bit more about the problem and, and then actually sort of take a bit of action and, and speak up for what you think is the right thing to do. Well, Pablo, thank you so much for your time. Unfortunately, we have come to the end of the podcast, but we've covered so much today from ethical dilemmas to the rationale for sustainable investment. You know, I think for me personally, the key, one of the key takeaways is that real need for empowering the individual, you know, through education and resources like Altiorum. And I think that's a really powerful message. But thank you, Pablo, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Ethics in Financial Services podcast series. We hope you all take care. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for having me and thanks to the BFO for inviting me. Really appreciate it.